back to another episode of the Diddy Geopolitics podcast. I am Sarah, once again joined by Yara, and today our guest is Wyatt Reed, managing editor at the Gray Zone independent independent news outlet, recent author of an article debunking a bunch of IDF claims as well as the hypocrisy within the United States government. Wyatt, hi, how are you today? How was your weekend? I'm all right. It was uh, just fine. Appreciate you guys for having me on. It's always good to be here with you guys. And Yara, welcome back from your day off that was unauthorized. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate the time, Didi. Always, always, always. And while we have all of you guys here, please like, share, and subscribe the stream because we are obviously deboosted for various reasons. So Wyatt, today we want to talk about the bombardment of it misinformation, disinformation, lies. I'm not really sure what were uh, propaganda, um, black propaganda, maybe all of the above. Um, maybe we can try to un unravel these sort of webs that the IDF has spun. Um, I know that Yara and I have kind of tried to keep up with it, but even with our own due diligence, I lost a lot of the timeline because every day it's like another like avalanche of of of, of information. So what we were with the nova festival so and you guys chime in when i when i miss something so we know that it was 7 october it was initially supposed to be thursday and friday um the about a month ago well the, the, initially the casualty count was 306 260 then it kind of yo-yoed and now we're back at 364 um about a month ago the a, a, a video surfaced about an with an Apache helicopter, and I think Area is going to pull it up. And it it it's been released for um, over a month. I'm not sure why. Like recently, it was it was kind of um it was kind of like oh breaking news. But uh, what we can see here, and our audience hopefully sees, is that we don't really know it, but it does look like some indiscriminate fire from a IDF hel Apache helicopter. So we've been told that this was like an all-out assault by Hamas, um, and now we're finding out, we've been finding out that IDF has been responsible for a lot of the casualties. So what are your guys' thoughts on the uh, the Apache helicopter video? You're right. That video has been out for several weeks. We first reported on that at the gray zone back in October, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but you can tell just, you know, on the face, they're blowing up cars. They're blowing <laughs> up ve vehicles, right? Like Hamas, they flew in on these bizarre paraglider contraptions. They they weren't driving in in SUVs, right? So they're, they're, and, and as far as I'm aware, there's never been an assertion by the IDF or by the Israelis in general that Hamas was, you know, driving around in what SUVs that they apparently crossed the border in these now. I mean, so so it was always absurd on its face. And that was why to me even kind of shocking that they released this at all, that they let this footage get out there in the first place, because it is so damning. You can see people are clearly fleeing for their lives, right? It's, it's not uh, some kind of, you know, counter offensive or offensives, I should say, being launched. You know, it's just, it's very clearly just people running out of their cars as they are blown up. I'm also not sure if there have even been claims from the Israeli side that uh, the Hamas militants, which were operating in this area, were using anything other than guns, right? Light uh, sort of caliber weaponry 
uh, things that could not have caused that kind of damage, these mass, you know, these uh, huge explosions that, yeah, clearly incinerated cars. Uh, I don't think they were wandering around, you know, wasting their RPGs on civilian cars like that. Uh, there's no indication, as far as I'm aware, even accusations from the Israeli side that they did. So there was always this huge disconnect between the Israeli narrative and between the actual footage and evidence coming out on the ground. And that gap has not uh, narrowed at all. In fact, if anything, it seems to be getting wider. We have this daily deluge of more videos, more supposed proof from the Israeli forces. Uh, it changes constantly. First, they said, of course, that they had to ethnically cleanse North Gaza. They had to force out all of its inhabitants at gunpoint at uh, you know the point of uh, mass bombing campaigns. Um, and the justification or excuse for all of this was, of course, that Gaza was, North Gaza was a hotbed of Hamas activity, uh, that hospitals uh, like Al-Shifa most famously, obviously, um, were the command center of some kind of Hamas operation. Uh, those, of course, turned out to be complete BS. There has been no evidence provided, except today we finally saw the first sort of video of something that might actually be a tunnel. Previously, we were shown video of an elevator shaft, uh, you know, in, in the, the recent IDF propaganda video. Uh, where the Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conrykus of the IDF basically gives a guided tour to a handful of credulous media. Uh, people like uh, Fox News' Trey Yinkst uh, managed to unwittingly document Wyatt, you're gonna the do change the whole, of evidence. You're going to do the whole episode <laughs> the first question. <laughs> because we we uh, haven't even like there's still like another twenty lies about the festival. So um, <laughs> the vacuum. Festival. Okay. Festival. I mean, so, the the lies the list of lies is long and it grows longer every day. So, so I'm trying, just start to, I'm you want. trying to understand what we're. I think we're all trying to understand <laughs> what happened that day, and you know, and and exactly when that was going to be a lot of my questions today. When you said, why even release it? Like, why even release the video of the helicopter? Was that like to try to say, oh, we're trying to be transparent and then swiftly realizing that you're like, wait, we didn't, maybe we shouldn't have, oh, like what? why even bother releasing it at all? I think that they would be better off, you know, being more like the Russians who, or the even the Americans who are like, you don't need to see that. Like, that's not for you to see. Well, I mean, again, the, the, the whole their whole uh, international support is contingent on waging this public relations campaign. So I think they do feel some level of pressure to get out anything. And I think that's also what you saw with the same video. I know you don't want to get too far ahead, but the same video I'm talking about in Al-Shifa, where they go discover the, first it was one AK-47 behind the MRI machine. Then it turned later into two AK-47s in the same Hamas go bag. Uh, but the, and, and these same videos, we saw, um, footage of the, a laptop ostensibly belonging to some kind of Hamas terrorist mm -hmm. that was, uh, logged in and open, um, and had a photo of one of the IDF soldiers who was taken captive on October 7th, um, displayed on the screen. 
was not, apparently not password protected or was belonging to somebody on the IDF, right? More, more likely the latter. Uh, the, the, the big question is, you know, how could you let that happen? That's such a massive F up that like, how, how could you let that happen? And yet they did, right? They did. And then they deleted the video. They reposted it with the image blurred. But uh, I mean, it's, it's like so much of the Israeli mystique and, and kind of the prestige that's been put out there in terms of the military uh, aspect, the technological aspect, um, and of course the propaganda aspect. I think we're starting to see a lot of these are kind of paper tigers um, and a stiff breeze or a stiff bit of resistance from Palestinian militants seems to be enough to blow the whole facade over. Well, in the spirit of throwing things at the wall and just trying to get something to stick, why did it, why have we kind of, they've come contradicted themselves. So, so we've first been told, we're told that nobody knew about anything. Hamas attacked on the 7th independently. Nobody knew. Um, Israel didn't know either. We're expected to believe that. Then we were told that Egypt actually knew about it and then warned Israel. Now, then we were told that Hamas actually knew about the festival and had been planning it for two years. Then in the recent Haaretz article, which was the same one that they talked about the helicopter actually killing Israelis, the same article, um, they, now I'm losing my train of thought, but uh, now they're saying that Hamas had no clue, couldn't have known because the, the, the festival was scheduled for Thursday, Friday, and then last minute extension into Saturday. And maybe the location changed. We're not really sure about that. So we've gone from Egypt knowing, Hamas knowing, there being a plan, uh, Israel maybe letting it happen. And now we're hearing that nobody knew about anything. It was a spur of the moment. Hamas just saw drones, saw the crowd via drones and then went. So what, why? And, and Sarah, to, to add to that real quick, that um, we know that before October 7th, Israel had been on the brink of a civil war, right? It was spurred by essentially Bibi Netanyahu's plans to change parts of Israeli life and society. So we knew that they were also at that brink so that comes at a very convenient moment because you know the attack itself um created a, an emergency government on israel's side so that just means that he can do whatever um also a last thing that i was going to mention is uh quantitatively just if you look at the the deaths we know that haaretz posted that most mostly the people and they post the israel account actually posted this on their twitter uh the deaths were mostly military personnel as well so also important to mention Right. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, um, I know we, we do know from the video footage, right? We know from this and this Haaretz article specifically, uh, you know, that wasn't the only finding. We, we also saw that they, they pointed out that in one of the body cam videos published by a uh, Hamas militant, uh, they can be seen asking these party goers to direct them to the kibbutz. Right to Kibbutz Raim, um, I think there there is quite a bit here to suggest that they were not aware that this festival was going to be held. Um, but you know, it's I think at that point it's it's really just well, what do you do? You know, you're halfway through this military operation. You're certainly not going to stop and you know redirect your efforts and and try to you know. I'm sure it threw kind of a, a, a wrench in the works, uh, if anything. I think they, I would imagine that they probably didn't, weren't really entirely sure what to do. And I think you, that kind of 
um, filters out in terms of the variety of footage that we've seen, where you can see this huge uh, gradient in terms of the treatment of uh, Israelis, where some of them are kind of, there's footage that indicates some Israelis were just basically executed. Um, and then there's other footage showing Hamas guys hanging out with, you know, grandmas and posing with uh, rifles. And it's totally, you know, it's like night and day. Um, so I think given that, you know, it, that, that if we're going to use that as a data point here, I would say it kind of, we're leaning towards they really didn't know that that festival was taking place, that it was going to be there at all, um, and that it probably was kind of more of a problem than it was, uh, you know, some big opportunity from their perspective. But that's, you know, obviously speculation at this point. And now we can talk about the hospital that why is so so excited to talk about so so our um so our listeners do know that the um hospital's actually been there since like the 40s um and it was originally or at least the 40s and it was originally a british a british army barracks actually and it was it was it was uh converted and and by and given over to uh the government uh in 1946 and then it was occupied in 1967 by uh israel and they actually took everyone there prisoner. So there's a, there's a, a good amount of history. Uh, there's about seven. It has a 700 person or 700 bed capacity currently, or re, most recently was operating well beyond that. In addition to housing thousands upon thousands of, of Palestinian refugees. So for sake of the timeline, so the, let's 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 pull up the cartoon. This is what the IDF shows us to tell us why they need to raid Al Shifa Hospital. Um, this is, um, very sophisticated. So this is what we were promised. We were promised an intricate system of tunnels and bunkers. Um, with what, what were some of those rooms? Like, I'm kind of curious what is going on in the other rooms? Some of them, they're just, I think there was just like a bed in one. I don't like, they had like a whole... I kind of want to. I kind of want to replay the graphic. All right, can we bring that back? I want to see better now that we know that this is just total nonsense. It's completely manufactured. Like, what else did they make up while they're? <laughs> Aria, can you pause it when it gets to the bunkers, so we can have a look at the. Uh... Yeah, it's, okay. It's, it's so what you want to with what we were promised? Oh no, they have. They oh yeah, no. No, so these are weapons stockpiles. So they have a whole bunch of rockets in one bunker and another one. Oh, there's all the fuel. There's all the fuel that they've been that they stole. stealing from the rest <laughs> of the Palestinians. There's no medical equipment here, which makes you wonder why they had to go behind the MRI to store <laughs> their guns. This is the coup d'etat. This is the, this is the, this is the cell. This is the nucleus of the, of right. the operation. This flag and a carpet. Yeah, yeah, four laptops. <laughs> that was probably where they got one of those laptops. From. Laptops, yeah. So, was... <laughs> it's one of my favorites. That's probably my favorite. So that's when they tell us that was the 27th of October, which now seems like an eternity. But that was when they tell us we have to raid. Hamas is underneath. We have no choice. 3 November is when they start bombing the ambulance convoys, which they said Hamas was using to transport weapons, which Hamas said no and then 7 november human rights watch says um that was an unlawful uh 
action and should be investigated as a war crime. Yet another Israeli war crime. Then they they destroyed the solar panels. Uh, then on the 11th, they said they would transport babies, which is like, why would you give your babies to the IDF? And then on 14 November is when the raid actually begins. And this is when um, Max kind of tweeted that uh, Sabrina Singh uh, press conference and your article came out uh, right around that time as well. So 14 November, if right. you could pull up the, the what I thought, what I want to point out about this press conference, is it, this video is kind of long, but the most important part is is the part that you point out in your article. So if, if Aria could, could run that really fast, the... Uh, press conference at the White House with Sabrina Singh. Okay, maybe not. Anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can kind of paraphrase her remarks. I mean, we, uh, the, the specific remarks that I think were probably the most interesting was she, she told reporters that the US intelligence community, as they like to call it, had no, quote, boots on the ground, that it didn't have intelligence assets that were capable of independently gathering intelligence. Um, and as I point out in this article that you mentioned, uh, the headline is Biden and admin justifies Israel's assault on Gaza hospitals with recycled Israeli intelligence. Um, as I point out in this article, uh, Sabrina Singh, the DOD spokeswoman, was asked repeatedly by journalists um, at this briefing whether that this, this supposed intelligence that the U.S. possesses, claims to possess, uh, was coming from the Israelis. And she refuses on multiple occasions to elaborate, to expand on where exactly it comes from. It looks like we found the video, so I can just let her speak for herself. Do you have information that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad uses some hospitals in the Gaza Strip, including the Al Shifa Hospital, um, as a way to conceal and support their military operations and hold hostages? They have tunnels underneath these hospitals. And so Hamas and PIJ members operate a command and control node from Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. They have weapons stored there and are prepared to respond to an Israeli military operation against the facility. So this is, I'm just telling you what we as the um, intelligence community assesses is happening in Gaza City, how Hamas is using these hospitals to operate. But absolutely, we do not want to see a firefight in a hospital where there are innocent civilians. Body. Forces on the ground, right? That's right. So I take it this intelligence assessment is gathered based on information provided by the British. Sorry, the this the, what I just read out. That's from our intelligence community. So you have any assets inside Gaza? We have no community? assets or boots on the ground in Gaza. So there's no uh, gathering on the ground about this. That's uh, right. So you have no one entering the hospital to verify this information, right? We have no one, we have no boots on the ground in Gaza. No boots on the ground in Gaza. This is so ridiculous. You like that? That, that was such a bizarre, rare phenomenon of a reporter in one of those rooms actually asking follow-up questions and really putting her on the spot and making her clarify, oh, the United States does not have U.S. intelligence assets on the ground, so... Where is this coming from? Obviously, read between the lines, it's coming from Israel. 
Um, and uh, then later on in that clip, at the end, um, Singh is asked, well, then like, what, what is, um, I, think, I think she was asked why about, about the timing. And she said, quote, this is a newly downgraded information that we felt was important to get out today because there have been a lot of questions about the hospital and how Hamas operates. And so it was important to get out there. So you have to remember this came out right as this IDF lie about Al-Shifa terror tunnels uh, was getting widely debunked. You have to remember this was, uh, I believe, the 15th, right, uh, three, four, four days ago. Um, so this was right when that Al that one of those first really comical Israeli propaganda videos came out, and it was just like everybody on social media was trashing them, and they were getting ratioed, um, and and it was just very clear that this was not going the way the IDF had hoped it would. And so then you had the U.S. kind of step in, bring out the big guns. Okay, we're going to come in and help you guys out, back you up on these absurd claims that are honestly kind of self-evidently false. But it, it, it's not actually about whether or not it's true or false. It's just about providing Israel with political cover to do what it wants to do, which in this case is effectively annex North Gaza, presumably then move on to the south. But in your article, like, I wanted to ask you because I'm like, do you think that she could just be lying about having boots on the ground or how they just really gotten to the point where they're like, we don't care anymore? What? We don't care what you think. We're just going to play telephone. Maybe we'll get OSINT and we'll be on our way. Or do they actually have intel on the ground? Well, she's not the first one to indicate the U.S. is relying entirely on OSINT. Uh, this was also a point. Uh, made by Jake Sullivan, I believe, the national uh, security advisor. He said that, quote, open source reporting shows that, quote, Hamas does use hospitals along with a lot of other civilian facilities for command and control for storing weapons for housing its fighters. So, you know, if, if this was indeed just open source intelligence, using the term very loosely there, uh, then this is something that the U.S. government has in the past said that it is relying on for this assessment that they apparently have now that, uh, you know, there are terror tunnels under all the hospitals. So, so follow-up question to that. Um, should the U.S. then uh, conduct a, an own independent analysis or investigations into uh, Al-Shifa or anything really that's happening in Gaza right now uh, instead of relying on just information that, that's uh, provided by obviously their allies, especially when it comes to military actions in these international conflicts? I mean, how can... How can we, uh, you know, how can the Biden administration in any way ensure the accuracy of this so-called intelligence it receives from Israel um, when, when it leads them to justify this military action and genocide? Well, the Biden administration is all in on this. The Biden administration has made it repeatedly clear, clear on numerous occasions that they have no intention of stepping in. Biden was asked point blank, you know, are you going to call for a ceasefire? No, no, not going to happen. Uh, he and 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 honestly, this kind of presumes that there is a, is a meaningful distinction between the U.S. and Israeli intelligence, which just sort of, you know, I don't think that the the U.S. intelligence community, especially under Biden and and more importantly under Anthony Blinken, whose grandfather was instrumental uh, in creating Israel to begin with, 
I don't think you can trust them to operate in any independent way from the Israeli government because at the end of the day, their goal is to facilitate the long-term ethnic cleansing that the Zionists have been very open about wanting to carry out for uh, many years. Uh, this is, you know, this is Joe Biden has been one of the most vociferously pro-Israel voices in the U.S. government, and that's saying something. Uh, over the past decades, he's a man who openly said if there was no Israel, the United States of America would have to create her. Uh, so this is a man who views Israel as inseparable in many ways from the United States, uh, kind of as the 51st state. So I don't think there really is any universe in which there's some independent United States intelligent assessment going to be gathered. If they did have, you know, intelligence assets on the ground, I'm sure the same thing would happen to the intelligence that was gathered, uh, you know, as, as, is, as always happens when the United States wants a war versus when it doesn't. Uh, the conflicting evidence disappears. The people behind it uh, end up, uh, you know, locked in some basement office. Um, and the people behind the nonsense that the military, uh, the security establishment wants to hear, the national security establishment wants to hear, uh, they, of course, rise to the top. And, you know, this is what we saw in Iraq. This is what we saw with the so-called WMDs. Uh, all throughout the early Bush years was that intelligence was not accepted on its actual merits or veracity alone. It was accepted on its uh, political expediency and uh, utility. So I do want to come to back to that because I want to ask you about um, the United States and, and what their desires are. But still on the topic of the hospital, um, we get at seven. We're, we've raided the hospital on 14th of November. We, we got the video that you mentioned that was deleted and then re-released. That was a seven-minute video on the 17th of November. It takes three days for us to get any video, real video evidence of the interior of Al-Shifa Hospital. And then it's pretty much immediately debunked by all places. The BBC area, if you could play the video and then we'll talk about all of this. Israel described the Al-Shifa hospital as the main headquarters for Hamas's terrorist activity. This IDF animation posted in late October claims to represent a Hamas tunnel system underneath the hospital. But having been inside Al-Shifa since early Wednesday, Israel's yet to produce evidence of the tunnels. It has allowed the BBC and Fox News to film at the hospital, though only locations of Israel's choice. This is what they found. Israel also released its own seven-minute video, which BBC Verify has analysed. A watch, visible in that video, suggests it was filmed a few hours before the BBC arrived. And this IDF video was posted, then deleted, then reposted. This time without a section referring to an Israeli soldier who'd been held hostage. I don't know when this was used the last time. Also in the video, we see a room with an MRI machine. And if you zoom in, and we get some light over here. What you will be able to see are is military equipment. The BBC was shown the same room. And what we see in the two videos doesn't precisely match. For example, there's one gun in the IDF video, two by the time of the BBC footage. Israel has told BBC Verify this is because more weaponry and terrorist assets were discovered throughout the day. 
And as always, an AK-47. Israel also says its video is a single shot with no edits. But this appears to be an edit. We don't know the reasons for that edit, nor how significant it is. The IDF, though, says suggestions it's manipulating the media are incorrect. The IDF video also shows military equipment in other locations, though we can't verify how it came to be there. And what we see in this IDF video doesn't equate to Israel's description of al-Shifa as an operational command center for Hamas. The U.S. is using a different phrase, saying al-Shifa was used as a command and control node. That implies a much smaller facility. Israel is adamant this hospital was a command center, but for now, at least, it's either not found supporting evidence or it's not sharing it. Back to you, Sophie. I'm really outraged because I was promised an entire Hamas, like, mole village with oil fields, <laughs> and maybe a garden, and, a, like, probably a university, and I got an MRI machine with guns stuffed in it, I think. And yeah. some w, some WD forty, and then but and and for the I was looking forward to like seeing this modern marvel of engineering that no one else on planet Earth has ever managed to do, but somehow these Palestinians under the world's worst blockade are are able to create this massive underground tunnel network. I think um, somebody Mario Nuffall said that there were five <laughs> five hundred kilometers. Oh I think. And they were 80 meters underground. And I, I remember like trying to do the math on how, how much dirt would you have to displace for 500 kilometers. And I was like, okay, two, let's say two square meters times five, you know, two square meters for somebody to walk in times 500 kilometers. And it, it turned out to be like 400 Olympic swimming pools full of dirt that would get moved. And it's like, wh where would that go? Did they just dump it all in the ocean? Like, where did they put the dirt? that they made, you know, they displaced creating this massive, none of these, all of these things kind of fall apart as soon as you think about them for more than three or four seconds. But, you know, I guess not everyone's up to the task. It's yeah. so, it's so bad that they, they put it by the MRI machines, which obviously magnetize, would magnetize any weapon. So that that's the last place you would want to store anything metallic. No, um, but they, they even, right. Like they even failed to, uh, to think about that or were completely unaware of this. So it's just ridiculous. I, I actually expected when he says that the IDF suggested that any, you know, any suggestions that the IDF uh, manipulated this video are incorrect. I expected him to say are anti-Semitic. I was like <laughs> kind of surprised. When he... we're, we're all conditioned. <laughs> we're just we're conditioned. All, like, <laughs> all right, here we go. And then, and then today, because you brought up Mario, see if, area has it has it queued today mario posts a new video from the idf which finally shows us the tunnels that we've been promised i don't know if you've seen yeah. this uh wyatt but I, it was and i'm sure a lot of our viewers haven't because this was uh today so i don't want to show the whole thing but area if you could just keep <laughs> keep going through it because i am very I'm, i want a refund like, do we have a receipt on Israel? Because this is not what I was promised. And again, they tell us this is, you know, this is the video. It's all intact. We didn't touch anything. How did they and climb down there? Are they <laughs> rappelling down this? I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm genuinely, I mean, there aren't like 
bars on the wall, are they? <laughs> no. Hold on. So, I mean, I, my first reaction was, okay, maybe they finally found the tunnels that they built underneath this hospital when they controlled it in the There's 80s. The cut. Did you see the cut? Here comes, the, here it comes. Go back. I think the cut was around, what was it, 122 maybe? But the, it cuts to a different tunnel. Yeah, right, okay. There we go. Okay, <laughs> now where are we? Yeah, that came out of nowhere. We've like somehow been just like magically transported to another <laughs> one another. Catacombs. Right now we're under Paris. Like, why do they do this to us? Like, what? Why? Like, is this? They just they're spending. They're telling us our, this is a budget that's even larger than the Ukrainian uh, propaganda PR campaign budget. Um, it's bad. It's bad. Like, why? Why even bother? Why even bother showing me that tunnel? And um, well, I think because the audience isn't, the audience isn't like skeptical, you know, younger people who are more inclined to kind of question what's happening on this issue. I think the audience is just, you know, Zionists and kind of mainstream America and their assumption, and it's mostly been true for the past fifty years, is just if we say something, then they'll accept it. So I don't think, you know, th this is the thing where I don't think they've had to try very hard historically on this propaganda stuff. And now we're kind of just realizing how flimsy it all is. And, you know, and, and I, I think it's worth asking also, you know, the timing of this, like why all of a sudden are the BBC and CNN willing to exercise like the minimum level of skepticism? And I think that, I mean, honestly, I'm interested in you guys' thoughts on this because I'm not totally sure where I stand. Part of me thinks it's it's kind of like a generational thing where there are actually Arabs working at some of these networks and they're more sympathetic and like, you know, maybe the younger generation is like, doesn't, is less willing to be labeled Islamophobic or something. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what I chalk up this newfound skepticism among the media uh, about Israeli claims to, but it's definitely a, worth kind of getting into, I think. Yeah, and I actually wanted to get into into this with you. Um, you know, it, it seems like what the the West doesn't really need the real facts of what so-called Hamas did, um, either on October seventh or with these bases or whatever. What they need more so is this uh, for for this genocide propaganda to continue is to generate this feeling within people around what happened that this was you know October seventh was unique. It was uniquely savage. It was uniquely atrocious. So they sensationalized that a lot and so the biggest this, pogrom since the holocaust right the biggest slaying of jewish people since the holocaust that's how it's being yeah so it's that together with um the language that that, that i wanted to talk to you about as a journalist you probably have a lot to say on this um the, the language that is being used also to describe all muslims right so we know that um western leaders since the beginning of this and all of the mainstream media now a couple are you know like the bbc are kind of going back but um they mobilized you know every single racial trope that they can find to refer to what's happening they've used themselves words such as savages barbarians human animals and whatnot to describe all Palestinians, not just Hamas, and then use this as this kind of logical conclusion to collectively punish all Palestinians and justify this genocide, while at the same time, they also ignore any historical context or any conversation around historical context. So um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about, about the biased language that you've noticed on both ends and the terminology, terminology that's been used uh, in mainstream media to 
to essentially uh, create this skewed narrative. Yeah, well, it's it, it honestly surprised me. I will say I didn't expect it to be quite so openly racist. I thought that, you know, the media had kind of, since the, the post 9-11 era, I thought that this was kind of a lesson that the establishment media had thought that it learned or, you know, that then, you know, now we all look back at that time and we think, oh, wow, that was an incredibly racist moment in American history of the bizarre hate crimes that were taking place to just like anybody who was uh, perceived to be Muslim, including like Sikhs, right? People who uh, were not Muslims themselves, who were just perceived that way. And then on it, we had this moment right after October 7th, where it's like, wow, we are just like, we took a time machine and we went back to the early 2000s when all of a sudden it was like acceptable to use this kind of language, uh, the human animals, uh, the savages, uh, and this, you know, started, it, it obviously originates on Israeli media, but then it makes its way over very quickly because the media in the week after October 7th was just a nonstop Israeli uh, talk show, basically. I remember, um, and, and Max um, at the Gray Zone also pointed this out, and maybe we can pull this video up at some point, uh, but he, he noted that over a two-hour period, the uh, CNN aired exclusively Jewish presenters, Zionist Jewish presenters, and Zionist Jewish guests. Uh, and the only, uh, the only exception to this was an Arab Christian woman who was married to a Zionist Jewish guy who was raising her kids Zionist Jewish, right? So that, that was it. That was the only thing you could see on mainstream media for weeks. And so of course it was just, you know, straight IDF propaganda and talking points. Um, but, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not, so again, I'm not sure if there was, you know, some straw that broke the camel's back or it's, it's also kind of a compelling explanation to me that I think um, there is a, a level here where these people are just kind of weather vanes and, you know, they're, they're determining which way the wind is blowing and they're seeing uh, that there is this huge segment of American society that isn't buying the Israeli narrative, that is viewing them as, and rightly so, is viewing legacy media as complicit in selling the Israeli narrative, whether it be in just mindlessly repeating the 40 beheaded babies lie that was mindlessly repeated by Biden. Uh, all of these... Uh, you know, I, I think maybe there was kind of a, a moment, a, sort of a, a moment in which some of these networks are hearing from their reporters or just, you know, checking out social media and realizing, okay, we, we need to at least pretend to tell the other side of the story a little bit more. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to lose all credibility with younger voters. Well, I also think that, I mean, we're still coming off the Ukraine-Russia war. And that was like, I mean, it wasn't as bad as this, but the propaganda for that was, we were debunking that left and right. So I, maybe there's a little bit of, of leftovers from that. So it, kind of like the same style of propaganda. I remember in the beginning, uh, Aria and I were looking at a bunch of Twitter accounts and we were like, these are the same people that ran the Ukrainian accounts. It's the same language. It's the same format and everything. So I think a lot of it is a lot of us were like this silly stuff with, 
the with Ukraine, they really can't recycle it that quickly. It hasn't even been five years yet. And it, I mean, it shows just the true double standard. I mean, do you remember early on in the first month or two after uh, the war kind of kicked off February 22, March 2022, there was this video in which, um, and I can't remember if it was a Turkish outlet put it out, but you could very clearly see Ukrainian militants riding around in ambulances, even even driving to a hospital, and, and they're wearing full uh, military gear, right? And so it was, it was obvious. The Ukrainians are carrying out, you know, here's another war crime. They are caught. You've been busted, right, by a mainstream outlet. And it was just radio silence, right? And here, there's just, there's these endless repetition of these claims that, oh, Hamas is running around in ambulance. There's not a single picture. There's not a single video. And so I think it is, it is kind of easy for people who are a little bit more skeptical of the mainstream media narrative to just be like, wait, weren't you saying this was a genocide, that the, the Russians were carrying out a genocide just months ago, and now all of a sudden, you know, Hillary Clinton tweeting a year ago saying, oh, you know, uh, 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 when you bomb a tip for the Russians, when you bomb a hospital, that's called a war crime. That's the only word for it. <laughs> Where? <laughs> What happened to that Hillary Clinton? You know, how do we reanimate yeah, where's the that condemnation today? Hillary Clinton and, and place her here to where it is actually happening, right? It's not just some propaganda that the Ukrainians imagined. It's real and it's verified by all sorts of mainstream media. Uh, and, and there's just, you know, this obvious hypocrisy, this obvious double standard. I think that's part, that is part of why this propaganda isn't catching on quite so well. Yeah. Very simple point. If Russian leadership would rather not be accused of committing war crimes, they should stop bombing hospitals. Good point, Hillary. Thanks, Hillary. Shout out to Hillary Clinton. Shout out to Hill Dog. War, war criminal extraordinaire. Now telling other people how to avoid being accused of war crimes. Fantastic. She could write a book on that. This little weird thing that came out today. Maybe we want to touch on that, Yara. Um, the IDF now, they released footage from cameras inside of Al-Shifa Hospital showing the Hamas fighters taking Israeli hostages to get medical care and treat the, the, the detainees. Previously, the IOF said that they had no way of seeing their hostages because Hamas um, destroyed all of the cameras inside of the hospital. So just another kind of silly thing that you know maybe just doesn't line up but i think you are they, they said they covered them up too right they, they covered them showed, up they should foot uh photos in which the cameras were covered with some kind of cloth that looked like rubber banded over it uh but it, it wasn't clear who put those there could have been the israeli military for all we know um and more than likely was since apparently they're now saying that these cameras were in use very recently. And I would imagine uh, that the Palestinians would want to document the Israeli army coming and kind of conquering this hospital. So to me, it just doesn't make sense why any Palestinians or why Hamas specifically would want to stop that from being caught on camera. Doesn't doesn't make sense. So I do want to ask you, you know, as as a journalist and, and you seeing all of this propaganda playing out in front of you, we have what over 50 claims now, probably closer to 60. 
um, of, of debunked uh, propaganda uh, from Israel's side. So um, what is your, like, how can people challenge these media narratives a little bit more and become maybe smarter when it comes to conducting independent research? Because I agree that I think that 9-11 um, was kind of the first iteration of us realizing that we'd been lied to and, uh, um, you know, there were no weapons of mass destruction. Then COVID was kind of a second iteration of that. And now um, we're seeing all of the lies coming out of Israel and people are really understanding what's happening, what's really happening uh, in Palestine. So um, now that we have kind of this momentum going in a way, um, what is your, you know, thought pattern behind how people can actually do you first of all do you think we're winning the information war on a global scale and second of all how can we continue challenging people to not just believe everything they see especially when it comes to the mainstream media and you know understanding the larger narratives at play the answer to the uh, how can we get people to not so readily accept really yeah yeah well, yeah, I, I, I mean, the answer is, and it's not. I mean, the short answer is to tell people to stop believing everything that the Israeli military says, to stop taking their claims at face value, to look into this very long history of disinformation, of outright lies and deceit um, that's accompanied really every Israeli military adventure since its creation. I mean, we don't even really have to look terribly far back in the history books. We can go back to Shireen Abu Akla, right? This Palestinian American journalist, very famous in Palestine, who was murdered by an Israeli sniper while uh, covering protests in the Janine refugee camp, while surrounded by other members of the press, nowhere near hostilities and wearing uh, press vest and helmet, uh, which obviously labeled her press in big, bright letters. Um, and so the Israeli claims around this incident, around this episode, were kind of instructive. I mean, they they changed very quickly and they changed very frequently. Um, the first claim, as I recall, um, was that no one had been shooting in, um, that day that uh, the Palestinians killed her, right? That was that was kind of the first claim that, oh, you know, these terrorists uh, killed their own journalists. Um, and then step by step over the next couple weeks, we slowly worked from, okay, well, um, it's possible that she could have been hit with a Israeli uh, bullet, uh, but unlikely. That became, well, it may have happened, but it certainly wasn't on purpose. Uh, you know, she wasn't being targeted. It was crossfire. And then finally, several several weeks, uh, yeah, several weeks later, almost a month later, I believe, they actually admitted, right, that they were behind this. They kind of offered this non-apology, uh, but it it didn't really have the same widespread international outrage happen. I think, you know, it, it was one person who was obviously widely beloved within the occupied territories, uh, but it wasn't this daily kind of assault on the conscience of the world public that we're seeing right now. 
Um, so you didn't have necessarily as much, I think, pushback, and you didn't have as much uh, of a reaction, at least from Western audiences, when that happened. But nevertheless, the pattern is there where you see, okay, you, your narrative is entirely divorced from the facts as they happen. You only see facts as something to be conceded when there is no alternative, right? This is not a, a government that, that can be treated with, um, you know, with any, any, any uh, or can be given any real credence when it, when it says these things, because the fact of the matter is it just lies so consistently about everything. And, you know, so, so, I mean, my personal way of kind of getting people to be more skeptical was explaining that this government just lies about everything. And if you take that as a starting point, that what they are saying is just as likely to be a lie as it is the truth. And there's no real way, you know, what the Israeli government says does not actually count as evidence in favor or against any claim. It is just a claim. Um, and as, as soon as we can you know, get more people to have that mentality with it. Um, and it certainly helps to have more people, especially in establishment media, hitting this kind of first step of just, oh, wait, perhaps there is a difference between reality and what Israel says. You know, I think that's a big, that's a big starting point. It's a big jumping off point. I don't want to read too much into it, especially when it comes to the mainstream media. But um, if they're able to kind of keep that energy up, I would be more optimistic about where we are going forward. And lastly, um, earlier you mentioned something along alluding to the fact that the United States wanted this war. And I, I don't know if I agree with that. And I, Yara, do you agree with that? I don't think the United States wants this war. I think I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, that they I think it. we've heard from uh, kind of military experts and stuff that the U.S. plays both sides so that, you know, it makes sense for them to get involved because they can sell their uh, military, you know, weapons to everyone. Uh, therefore, they make more money. And also, I do think that they want this war because we we do we did talk to Pepe Escobar last week about the Ben-Gurion Canal, the India-Middle East corridor and the strategic interests that exist there. That, like, as you said earlier, Wyatt, uh, Biden himself said in 86 that if there were no Israel, uh, they'd have to strategically have one there to protect their interests. So I do, uh, to an extent, believe, but I, I'd, I'd be interested in having this conversation for sure. Well, my, my take is just that the Israelis, certainly, and the United States political establishment has always viewed the Palestinians as a problem and an obstacle um, to be overcome to be disposed of, discarded, dumped somewhere, but just, you know, get rid of them, get them out of the way. Uh, they're just, they're just a big stick in the mud and they're stopping, um, you know, long-term U.S. geopolitical strategy. They are, they are seen as an impediment uh, because they are this, um, this thorn in the side of the Israelis, that they stop the Israelis, whether it be um, you know, this proposed canal that, or pipelines that people are mentioning uh, that, you know, I've, I've seen hyped up a great deal on social media. And I, I haven't actually researched uh, as extensively as I should have. Um, but whether it is because the Israelis want to want this for uh, resource purposes or whether they just view 
the Palestinian population is a long-term strategic threat to this Jewish majority, uh, you know, uh, dynamic that they insist on having. Uh, ultimately, the Palestinians are viewed as something to be done away with, and the United States position for many years um, has been to facilitate that process, and it's only gotten more overt in the past 15, 20 years, uh, where you have kind of uh, a refusal even by a lot of uh, influential politi politicians, um, especially in the, this is especially pronounced in the Trump administration. I'm not sure why I'm sideways, but, uh, but the, the, <laughs> uh, yeah, why are you sideways? Mossad is here. Mossad has gotten into <laughs> computer. But, but uh, I, okay, we'll try, let's see how this works. Like, can I just, can I just turn myself over again? Yeah, there okay. you go. All right. That seemed to work. Uh, but, but it's been very clear that, that the United or the Israelis and and the United States behind them have all seen the Palestinian problem as a as I'm sure they would put it as as something to be uh, dealt with conclusively, right? And I think they view this as a wonderful, tremendous opportunity to do exactly that to go out and ethnically cleanse Gaza, which is something that they've been wanting to do for many years. They regularly uh, carry out what they call mowing the lawn in Gaza. Every few years, they want to depopulate it and teach it a lesson. Um, and now I think they are just going much, much further than they have in those previous uh, wars and sieges on Gaza. I mean, it couldn't be more obvious now that they, they you know, they've committed their Nakba 2.0. They've uh, essentially forcibly displaced, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people from northern Gaza now to southern Gaza. Now they also claim that there is a Hamas base in the south. So... You know, it's it's just painfully obvious what's happening here for anyone who's who's actually paying attention. Well, actually, so I would challenge. Okay, so I would challenge Sarah. I would challenge you on this point. I would just say, if the United States does not want this to happen, where is your evidence for that? Where is there evidence that they don't want what's being carried out, the massacres being carried out in Gaza to continue not being carried out? That. I don't think that they care about that. Sadly. Um, I don't think that they care about what happens to Gaza. I'm talking about the big war, the great war. I don't know if they're ready or that they want to engage with Iran right now. Um, I think what I'm trying to get at is that uh, Israel is kind of acting on its a lot of it. It's on its own accord. It's acting like a rogue, as as Dr. Finkelstein would say, a lunatic state. It's acting like an absolute lunatic state. It's out of control. I don't think that the United States is approving of a lot of these actions. They're kind of just like we, we're we're kind of tethered to this state and this maniacal state. And I don't think that I think that the United States has shown a little bit of reluctance in the way that they're letting the media behave, in the way that some of the politicians are behaving. You know, just just kind of there's a lot more flexibility than I remember there being after 9-11, um, even a lot more flexibility than I remember for towing the line for Ukraine. So that's kind of where I'm coming from is that the, the official messaging is changing, which is making me feel like there's some sort of hesitation to want to get fully involved in a full-scale operation. I don't think that they care what happens to Palestine. I think that they'd be happy for Gaza to be destroyed and flattened. I, I think that they... Um, don't want Israel to continue to engage Hezbollah. 
Um, they don't want more trouble in Syria and Iraq, and they I just don't think that they want to take on Iran as an ent- like as a full state entity. I agree. Honestly, I agree. I think I get, like I I think that's really the only thing limiting from the United States perspective. Like that's really the that's really the red line. They can do whatever they want in Gaza, but they're not allowed. I would say to start a full on regional war at this point, right? I I I think I agree with you on that. If that's your point. Well, yeah, I just don't think because, you know, I just had an episode, Gar wasn't there, but I did have an episode with Brian Berletich, uh, I get think it was Thursday, I don't know. Um, but, and we talked about it a little bit and he, we, I just don't think that the United, because in understanding that if that, if that front opens, the front with Taiwan or something in the South China Sea is almost certainly going to open. And I don't think that we can handle that a three front war. And that's, I think the hesitancy comes from that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's all I'm saying. I don't, I will never think that the United States cares who dies or who commits war crimes or any of that happening. I'm talking about the huge scale of things. The loss of hegemony can, can really be, it can be tenuous. The hegemony can be tenuous if two more fronts open up in this war. Ukraine is for, I mean, it's done, but it's technically not done. As a, as a war front and Russia is continuing their march to the West. So sure. I'm just not, sorry, my, my dog doesn't, isn't enjoying this <laughs> anymore. Um, but, <laughs> but I just don't, I, I don't think that they're ready for the big war as much as they grandstand and say that they are. But again, then someone- Well, they're not, but, but I don't think necessarily that the Iranians or the Lebanese feel that they are ready for a major military conflict either. I mean, I don't think, I don't think either the, you know, Hezbollah or, or the Iranians want a war. I think they've made that pretty clear from uh, the speech that Nasrallah gave uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was pretty clear that um, Hezbollah isn't interested in going to war, full on war with Israel. That's why they continue to have these kind of skirmishes that uh, rise in frequency and intensity as. Israeli strikes on Gaza increase, you know, that to me is as basically as far as they've won- they've shown themselves to be willing to go. Uh, the um, seizure today of the shipping freighter, the tanker by uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, the the massive ship, massive container ship yeah, yeah, yeah. by Ansarullah, Galaxy, the, Houthi, the so-called Houthi, yeah, yeah. The Galaxy leader, something like that. Um, I think that that was another escalation, right, by kind of the axis of resistance. Um, that was another effort to say, okay, you guys are taking it too far. So now we have to show our willingness to escalate, go up this kind of strategic uh, ladder of escalations. Okay, you know, we are now going to imperil your shipping lanes through this enormously important um, uh, tr- uh, transit corridor, transportation corridor. So. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think we're going to see uh, for the time being. I think we're kind of in a holding pattern. I don't think that this is necessarily going to spill over into World War III tomorrow. I think we've seen kind of all sides involved, except maybe the Israelis, uh, show that they don't necessarily want to engage in like a regional war. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily, yeah, going to happen right away. Although long term, it seems like, um, you know, especially if the rest of the Gulf states 
do not normalize relations with Israel, um, as seems to be what's happening now that Saudi Arabia's have gotten the Saudi Arabians have gotten cold feet on their normalization deals. Um, if that goes, you know, that trend continues and they ultimately align more with Iran than with Israel, then I think, you know, at some point, yeah, maybe we will see um, the decision made from the West and from the Israeli perspective that, you know what, like now it's time to just go all out and divide up the world and let the chips fall where they may. But, you know, hopefully we're not uh, quite there yet. Well, we are at an hour, but um, if you do have time, we do have a special guest popping in. Maybe. I don't know. But um, we'll see if he shows up. But maybe Yara has a, a question or discussion in the meantime while we while we wait for him to grace us with his presence. Yeah, I'm happy to stick yeah. around for a little bit longer. Awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, I, think, I think you know him. You might know him. Okay. It's it. It's interesting, right? They say now Iran was behind the, the Houthi seizure of the, the ship in the Red Sea. They call it another act of Iranian terrorism. For those of you who, who maybe haven't seen this latest development, um, so this cargo ship was uh, uh, owned by an Israeli businessman, was hijacked by Yemen's Houthi rebels. Uh, this happened just recently today. Um, and uh, is today Sunday? Yeah, it is. And uh, they they uh, they essentially accused Iran of of directing this 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 what they call maritime piracy. Um, it's just very interesting how now they're uh, they're they're bringing Iran into this and saying how you know it's another act of Iranian terrorism. I mean, just ridiculous. They called, <coughs> excuse me, they called Iran a Nazi. <laughs> they called it a Nazi octopus. So. No, no. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. I, what was the tweet that it said, Aria? It said something like, "It's a, the Nazi terrorist regime," or the quote, the quote from today, the Nazi, the octopus of Iran's Nazi terrorist regime. It was really wild. It's 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 Who getting said like, the IDF, I believe. <laughs> what? Yeah, very unhinged. Ukraine level unhinged. That's my that's my tweet. Okay, we have warned the world. <laughs> we have warned the world several times that Iran is an octopus, and every terrorist act in the Middle East and the world is funded by the Nazi regime in Iran, <laughs> <laughs> which is just great because um, two weeks ago, uh, poor Greta was uh, was just vilified in the media for her anti-Semitic octopus. But now um, they're telling me that Iran is a Nazi octopus in the Middle East. So I'm, I'm, we're maybe the octopus wasn't anti-Semitic after all. I'm not really. So not credit really... where it's due. I didn't think anyone could make me feel empathy for Greta. Could make me like take her side. And then lo and behold, the Israelis they did it. So hats off to the Israelis for making me side with Greta. Congratulations. Hats off to hats off to the Israelis for creating a bunch of unity across the world for Palestine more than ever before. Yeah. Doing a great job. Do you think so? We I asked Brian the same thing, so I'll ask you uh, while we're waiting. But do you think that this is the end of Israel? Um, what, or at least the Zionist entity, like in in that sense, like what what does this signify? We've seen a huge shift. We're no longer people are no longer willing to toe the line for Israel. Uh, where, like, what, 
is this the end? Is this, or are we going to see a resurgence? Yeah, I try not to get too into these kind of predictions because there's just, I think there's so many variables at play that it's it's really hard to see how this shakes out. Um, you know, questions like how how long can just civilians in Gaza endure, you know, just this day-to-day siege now that it's gotten so much worse? Um, how willing are people to leave their homes in South Gaza now that they've seen what happened to those who fled North Gaza, right? Um, so, I mean, there, there are elements of this where I think it's just kind of impo- impossible to say for sure one way or the other, but, but it's hard to not feel like this is on some level the beginning of the end, right? Because I, I have just never seen this widespread sentiment, and, and it's especially pronounced um, in the Democratic Party. I don't think I've ever really seen the Democratic elite so out of touch with just the average democratic voter where three quarters of the party is loudly saying you know ceasefire now and i think what less like two percent of the members of congress are willing to vote that way so um and, but that's even the republicans right even 50 percent of republican voters want a ceasefire how many actual republicans are willing to vote that way i mean thomas massey Sure, you know, maybe I, I don't know how, how Rand Paul is voting on all this, but um, there are uh, real signs that this is an issue which could kind of fracture the foundations of the whole thing if it's not uh, treated appropriately by the U.S. government and especially by, by the Israeli government. Right, which, as I as I noted earlier on, is just not used to having to really fight for hearts and minds in America so much. For so long, it was just it was able to get away with like these idiot savages. That's you know just pointing towards like look at these Arabs. They want to murder us. You guys know that because you know you saw what happened with nine eleven, right? And now that's that's just it's not just backfiring. We're having like the Guardian has to take down Osama bin Laden's letter to America. TikTok has to come out with this public pronouncement explaining, you know, we're not actually juicing the numbers and trying to convert young Americans to being Al-Qaeda sympathizers. Young people on our platform are just genuinely interested in what Osama bin Laden had to say in his letter. Um, and so I, I do think there is something different here in the sense that I've never seen this widespread of a condemnation of anything that Israel has done, anything really a uh, U.S. vassal, or I don't know if they're, they're a vassal at this point, but a U.S. kind of protectorate um, has been willing to do. I just, I, I, this is the first time I'm seeing it, I think. Um, and so it's hard not to feel like something has changed, uh, genera- generationally maybe, um, but just in terms of seeing kind of this large segment of both the right and the left that are saying, you know what, like not in our name or no more foreign wars or some variation of it that just indicates people are not, people are not interested in perpetuating another Israeli massacre of Palestinians. Absolutely not. I think we see a lot of, um, we see so much proof coming out of just all these war crimes that are being committed by Israel and all these uh, innocent civilians that are dying that, I mean, it would be completely inhumane for the world not to have some kind of uh, reaction to that, you know, 
aside from obviously Zionists and, and people that have some kind of financial interests in, in death of Palestinians. But I think what worries me a little bit at this point of just the media coverage is the normalization of this death, um, this, this, um, this lack of empathy or, or understanding for the suffering of, of Palestinians. So I'm really worried um, that, that all this footage that we have from Palestine and and still no change right on a on a more on a more right. political governmental level that this desensitization is is going to continue and we're, we're just going to normalize it like you know the in the past because of how the media covers it so that's not to say that the media doesn't cover it they do to an extent in in as much as they're I guess allowed to um but uh, what happens is that it's because it's not as sensationalized as October 7th was, um, people don't uh, attach the kind of same importance to it. And so it leads to uh, the suffering of Palestinians just doesn't matter as much as the suffering of, of people in Israel. Um, so that's my main concern right now, uh, because the, the media isn't going to ever cover any of, you know, it, it's like you said, um, <clears throat> Whenever uh, with the with the journalist that got got killed in the back of the head, um, it, there was no real outrage about that. Aside from people that you know really knew what was going on or had been follow, following what's going on in Palestine for a minute, there was no global outrage in the same way as there was this global outrage on October seventh. So it obviously we've we've seen more than ever how some lives matter more than others, and you know. How, how the ratio is completely disproportionate with uh, deaths on both sides. Um, it, 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 it that's what worries me now, just as a journalist, like this, this normalization of death in, in Palestine. Well, I'll say that particular phenomenon you're referring to this, you know, the double standard, the media double standard there. Sure, it worries me, but it also in some weird way kind of gives me hope because for every just you know crystal clear super obvious example of the media treating palestinians one way having two separate rules for two separate populations it drives people to ask questions certain people to ask questions right so we you now have people like you know candace owens um who i would have have said you know even several years ago is just a firm fixture of the right not going to be moved on this issue, um, very openly sort of pointing to this phenomenon, saying, why is it that I'm allowed to say that I mourn the victims of October 7th, but I'm not allowed to say that I mourn the Palestinian babies killed by Israeli airstrikes? Why is it that I can't say that? Why is it that we are accused of anti-Semitism for saying things that are just obviously not anti-Semitic, had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, uh, even slightly, but were critical in some way of the Israeli government. Um, as I said, it just doesn't really seem to be working as well anymore. And, and their ability to kind of bully or silence critics um, through things like the canary list, you know, maintaining for years these blacklists of people who spoke out um, in support of Palestinians. Um, and, and try to get them fired from their jobs, try to prevent them from getting hired anywhere, try to get them kicked out of school. Um, it, th these attacks are just kind of diminishing in terms of their effectiveness, in terms of their ability to really truly censor people. Uh, and, and, you know, sure, it, it is 
upsetting to see, but on some level, it's kind of gratifying. It's like, you know what? Stay so out of touch. Continue being so dramatically out of touch with what everybody else is saying, because it just makes you uh, less and less a part of the conversation going forward. And frankly, that's, yeah, I think a win for not just like myself on a personal level, but I think like all of humanity is better served by having the mainstream media clowns and liars uh, be further alienated and isolated from normal people. It is. It's true. I mean, we're seeing them expose themselves in 4K. So it's really for anyone who uh, joined journalism to to be a real journalist and to you know expose these these kind of stories. It is it is hopeful in a way because it is pushing uh, a lot of journalists and people overall to want to learn how to verify their own information, to want to really understand what's happening and you know it's a global movement at this point uh, you can you can call it an eco chamber all you want but when you have millions marching in in all the major cities in the world uh, for free palestine you know at this point you've lost and uh, it is true it's it's the 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 horrifying thing is that we can't change anything about what's happening right now but um, i do really believe that if we keep talking like this and we keep sharing and debunking and questioning all these narratives uh, that over time they're not they're just not going to be able to sustain this it's just too many lies piled on top of each other um, and even when you mention the lies, which is the craziest thing, Propaganda and Cohen posted a tweet the other day of the 50 Israeli lies. And even when you mention the lies, they still uh, removed that tweet and um, said it was violating Twitter's policies or whatever. So you cannot even question or mention the fact that they themselves are lying about all of this. And that's just the extent to which they're going through, which is crazy. Look who it is. Hey. What were you doing? Who, me? Yeah, were you eating? I always, have stuff, I always have stuff in my teeth. I always have stuff in my teeth. So I had to get it out. Like, no, always. Well, at least now anyway. nobody knows about it. No, nobody. Nobody except all the wonderful viewers here. <laughs> hey, good to see you, Why? Good to be with you, Sarah and Lara. This is Yara, my uh, Yara, good, Yara. Good to nice to meet you. Thank you. Good to meet you. Finally, Thanks. this is number one China bro, Danny Haifong. <laughs> good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for allowing me to pop in. Yeah, why are you? What, what are you here for? What do you want? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we were just talking about. I'm just, I'm just here to troll, you know. Oh, oh. Go, well then, Danny, you have the floor. No, I, I have nothing. I have nothing. I'm the, I'm the anti-troll. Danny, talk about what what G what's going to happen now with G and Biden. You you and Wyatt, tell us what happens with that trip. <laughs> the trip to uh, what happened? Can we I mean, can we pull up the clip of Blinken? The Blinken yeah, screen? we have to pull that up. We have to pull that up. So <laughs> while I'm while I'm Aaron. rambling, while while I'm rambling, and then Wyatt's rambling. Yeah, we love the video that up. you made, Danny or Area um let's see what happened so i mean the apex up it happened uh xi jinping went all the way to san francisco basically on the they call it an invitation but really it was begging because this relationship has been completely ice cold for basically the good part of the year and ever since the whole spy balloon incident back in february of this year and so Xi Jinping actually agrees to go. This is after 
more than a half dozen meetings. Janet Yellen, Anthony Blinken, you had Wang Yi go all the way to Washington to meet with Biden before this. And it was supposed to be relatively, both sides had very little expectations. It was, there were, you know, these things that happened during the summit, during the actual meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping, military to military communication, some things on narcotics that were agreed upon. This is very small stuff. This is, these are things that were happening even as relations were very cold from pre-February 2023 period. And, and China canceled them all because of the spy balloon incident. So after the meeting, <laughs> Joe Biden just can't help himself. So he's giving a press conference on a myriad of topics. I mean, this is always happens at Biden pressers after these kind of meetings. Reporters are asking about a whole bunch of things. So, of course, one of the first questions is, do you call Xi Jinping a dictator? Oh, we have the video. Yes, we should play the video and then, <laughs> and then we can react. You still refer to President Xi as a dictator. This is a term uh, that you used earlier this year. Oh, he is. Hello, darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. So, so that was caught on. Uh, that was That went viral because... I mean, it was such a clear expression. There was also another uh, aspect to this presser where Biden is talking about Palestine, Hamas, Gaza. They're asking him about the prisoners of war or the hostages, as they call them. And he essentially is looking at Blinken as Blinken is right. nodding his head no. And, <laughs> and Mint Press actually, I think, was the first I saw report on this and, and show the video. And he goes... Oh, yes, Mr. Secretary, I know I should stop talking now. I mean, this is how bad everything looks. So, I mean, while it's not just the Xi Jinping dictator comment, this comment in particular is very, I think, startling to the United States foreign policy establishment, which was hoping if anything out of this summit, there was going to be no waves made in, in the case of uh, plunging relations to a new low. Now, China is very mature. So China is not making the hugest deal of this. I mean, they've condemned the comments. I don't think that they're going to take away any of the minor agreements that they came to. But I do think that this kind of comment does have an impact in terms of trust. Right? I mean, this is, this is you, the United States, begging Xi Jinping to come. They want China to help with the economic situation. Of course, they're always asking China to help out with all of their foreign policy mess. You know, can you please help Iran, Russia? They're always asking for help on that level, which is ridiculous, but they always do. So there were supposed to be no waves made, but this comment, that face by Anthony Blinken, and now Anthony Blinken, of course, is no master of diplomacy himself. Arguably, he's one of the worst diplomats, if the United States ever had diplomats, which I don't think they really do, but he is not even able to really play the part or act the part, so to speak. So he is really no one to make these kind of faces, but it's quite clear that he made this face because he did not want to, not, no one, I don't think, in Biden's cabinet, in the Pentagon, anywhere, even in intelligence, wanted him to say these kind of things at that very moment. You know, maybe wait a week, maybe wait a couple of weeks, but he couldn't even wait an hour. Xi Jinping was still in the United States. He was still in California at that time. So... All this is to say is that it just is clear that Biden's mind is not just addled, but I think is a clear reflection. You know, uh, 
it's one thing to have an adult brain, but it's also one that clearly reflects what the United States actually thinks about China, what it actually wants to do with regard to China. And, and that isn't changing because of this meeting. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it shows you they they rolled out the red carpet for him. Right. And they cleaned up San Francisco. They swept up all the homeless people. Uh, they gave it kind of the Olympics treatment um, just to make it seem like a Disneyland version of the city. Um, where you you don't have this massive, tremendous drug problem. You don't have this massive um, issue of just, uh, you know, kind of addicts living in the street uh, openly um, using. And uh, I, I want to say also um, when discussing this kind of Blinken-Biden relationship, I think there's kind of, it's another point in the column of who who is actually in charge of the Biden administration, that being Anthony Blinken, right? Who's actually the one calling the shots? Who is Biden bouncing ideas off of? Who is he looking for in the audience for validation and confirmation that he's checked the right boxes? It's Blinken, right? So I think this kind of confirms in some way something that a lot of us have been saying for a long time, which is that Biden isn't really in charge of his own administration. He's kind of a bystander. He's having scripts fed to him and he's not able to read them particularly convincingly. Um, and the, you know, the natural result is that like nuclear level cringe where you see the soul leaving Blinken's body where he's just, how could you, how could you, we spent all this time trying to, trying to try patch up this relationship and go back, I think towards like a more sort of Kissinger style. Okay. We're going to, we're going to try to divide and conquer when it comes to Russia and China. And then Biden just shits the bed um, and falls for this obvious gotcha question. And then another interesting angle, I think, that kind of backs this up is, is Xi spending relatively little time talking to Biden. And I think, you know, sitting at a table with people like, um, you know, uh, what's his name? The BlackRock guy, Larry, uh, I'm blanking on his last name, uh, but all these like titans of industry um, huge, you know, finance guys. I think that's who Xi Jinping was more interested in speaking with than somebody like Biden, who he probably, uh, you know, guesses that there's really not a whole lot of, of point to trying to engage him because can he even hold a conversation? Does he actually know what's being said at any given moment? Who knows? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's definitely... True. And, and I think that comment you made, Wyatt, about the titans of industry giving Xi Jinping a round of applause in San Francisco, I think is emblematic of China's larger strategy in terms of how to weather the storm of U.S. aggression or uh, suicidal aggression, we should call it, because this has been China's strategy for many, many years, which is to be so ingratiated, be so interconnected with the world economy that uh, whatever moves the United States decides to make, whenever it decides to make them, are not going to be effective. They're not going to be able to lead to, for example, the kind of instability that the sanctions on Russia caused the world economy. Now, of course, Russia itself has been very uh, resilient, and I think the numbers right now are incredible in terms of growth in Russia, upwards of 5%. But uh, nonetheless, China does not want to see that kind of activity directed toward itself, and arguably it has been the target of, of uh, lower-level kinds of sanctions from the United States. But it's more thinking about 
well, what is the impact on the world economy? Because if the world economy is not doing well, then China has a lot more trouble meeting its own goals. And so that display, that uh, picture, uh, that imagery of Xi Jinping being applauded by basically the biggest stakeholders in the United States, those who actually control the levers levers of power, show a dynamic that has been brewing under the surface, that there is dissatisfaction. For example, people like Elon Musk definitely do not want China to be decoupled from because that would be disastrous for his investments. There are many like him. So I think that uh, in the end, uh, Wyatt is exactly right, (laughs) that, that China is more interested, of course, in the economic players, because I don't think they have, who could, who could have any hope in the U.S. political class when it is led by people like Antony Blinken, who are just out and out neocons. They they have no, uh, you know, they have absolutely no tact. They have no ability to conduct actual diplomacy, to uh, develop relations in a way that are balanced and steady and, and fair. They don't have any sense of that. They can only think about how to advance their own careers, which at this point with China, for someone like Antony Blinken, only by scoring points on aggression and Cold War uh, politics and policies, those are the only things that are going to advance Antony Blinken's career. I mean, I couldn't see him anywhere else, really. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> so I did talk to Brian Berletic the other night, um, Danny, and so I'll ask you too. But he said we were talking about it being like a multi-front World War Three situation for obvious reasons, and understanding that Russia has won on the Ukrainian front. And then Brian's argument was that. Uh, there's no way for Israel to lose on the Israeli front. But my issue is, is that they have to lose all three because the third front would be Southeast Asia and they're not going to win in Southeast Asia. So how, and his argument was that Israel still stays six around as a state. Well, I mean, it's a huge question in the short term. I definitely see that. In the long term, of course, what Israel is doing, I think, is absolutely suicidal to the Zionist project as a whole, because eventually something is going to give, whether it's regionally uh, or or whether it it truly is. I mean, I I think people underestimate Palestinian resistance. I, I don't believe that it is possible to simply eradicate the entire Palestinian population. I actually don't even think that the right now the out the situation on the battlefield if we could call it even that because i think it's far different from what's going on in ukraine it is much more of an like an anti-colonial guerrilla warfare struggle so incredibly hard to measure any kind of semblance of victory i mean ho chi minh said during the uh, u.s uh, i believe it was the u.s war of aggression in vietnam like you can kill hundreds of us and we may only get 10 of you but we're still going to win like that it's that kind of mentality that I think helps sustain a resistance. So regardless of what people think of Hamas, is Hamas the correct resistance outlet leadership? I mean, that all is for the Palestinian people to ultimately decide. But I do think that it is not possible. There's going to be more casualties. There's going to be more deaths. We know this. But at the same time, I'm not so sure that 
Israel is as stable medium term and long term as we may predict. I mean, even just this event, I think, shows how fragile, how sensitive is Israel and Israeli leadership is to any kind of incursion or disturbance to their overall project just in Palestine proper. This is even to get into how we've only seen, I think, the beginnings of the regional situation becoming more and more inflamed. And I think a lot of analysts, Scott Ritter, others have talked about the patience and all of this. And I think that's all true. However, you know, patience can only go on so long before it becomes cowardly, right? So there's only so long that something like this can go on. There will be another, regardless of what happens here, whether it's a week, another month, another two months, eventually things will have to die down or we'll get what I'm talking about a lot sooner. And when it does, there will be another instance where this happens. And I think that's what this is teaching us. This moment is teaching us that this is this is part of the overall Israeli project, Zionist project. And with that comes immense pressure on the entire world, but especially the region, to eventually sacrifice whatever the other stakes that are being considered, the regional economy, all of these things are obviously being considered by a lot of these players. There's sanctions everywhere along the region. There's so many different factors. I mean, Syria is basically still fighting a war. So it's it, while it is difficult, we see the resistance there. It's there. We see U.S. installations being attacked by Syrian and Iraqi resistance forces. We see Hezbollah taking some action, light action, action that it can sustain. And we also see, well, at least it's hard to see, but we do know and there are reports that, well, of course, there are significant Palestinian deaths and this is a literal genocide. They're fighting. <laughs> they are fighting. And uh, it, it, nothing coming out of Israel makes me believe that somehow there's going to be some decisive victory over Hamas. That feels absolutely out of reach so with that what does that mean does that mean that hamas loses sure you could say that because of all these dead palestinians you could say oh they lost but at the same time israel is losing the public relations war is becoming more and more isolated it will become more and more isolated even after this is over so losses will be incurred on all sides i believe so final thoughts from everyone. Is this the end of United States hegemony? And another phase in the end of ultimate end of United States. I already know Danny's answer because Danny and I are both very utopian thingers. But is this the, another sign of the end times for the United States global hegemony uh, with coming from the context of Ukraine, Russia, now Israel, and then possibly future Southeast Asia? Well, if you know Danny's answer already, then I'll go. Um, <laughs> I've been, I mean, I've been saying really before even the Ukraine uh, disaster that the, the fix is in, that this, this really we're headed only in one direction long term geopolitically, and that is towards multipolarism. That is an irreversible trend. It does not matter how many new proxy wars the United States uh, pushes, creates, and maintains, 
long term, there is only one direction, um, and that is towards a more either, you know, UN actual rule-based order instead of the so-called liberal rules-based order, um, uh, or whether that be some form of, of regionalism, how exactly that looks has yet to be determined. Um, but we know that the current status quo as it pertains to the international realm is just not sustainable. It's not working for the rest of humanity. And if you've spent any time in the United States, it's certainly not working for us here either. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And just add a few things. I mean, in terms of US hegemony being over in many ways, the United States' credibility in it, with regard to its hegemony is over. I mean, just in the last less than 24 hours, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, while regardless of whether we think this is a genuine show of support and solidarity with Palestine, the foreign minister of, of Saudi Arabia is going to be going on a tour to try to galvanize international support for the end of this, the war on Gaza. And his first stop is not Washington, his first stop is going to be Beijing. So that alone, I think, demonstrates that when it comes to matters of global importance, the United States certainly is not the first that countries in the global majority, nations in the global majority in the global south call. They do not call on the United States anymore. When there is development that needs to be had, when there's diplomacy that needs to be done, it is China and to some extent and to a good extent Russia as well, that countries are calling, that nations are calling. So really U.S. hegemony in the sense of politics, global leadership, in the sense of credibility, which all really matter because Sarah used the word a utopian. I think there's also something very real in terms of this contradiction between, yes, the United States still is the world's largest, largest economy. It still has the world's largest military. It's obviously doing damage. Look at all the dead Ukrainians. Look at all the dead Palestinians because of its proxy wars there in these regions. But you could also say that just because the United States has this large economy and this large military, you could also say the United States hasn't really won anything in a very long time, won any war, any conflict of any kind by proxy or by direct invasion. I mean, could we say Iraq was a victory? Could we say Afghanistan was a victory? Could we say what has happened to Venezuela is a victory? Could we say any of the Syria, et cetera? None of them have really been victories. Really, the United States wages war now and exerts its dominance in a manner that doesn't really lend to victory. It lends to chaos. And while chaos has its short-term advantages, it has long-term costs. And we're seeing that everywhere. What's happening with regard to Israel is having incredible long-term costs that are hitting us all in the face, I think. Anyone who's following this conflict with an ounce of in a shred of humanity sees that the credibility of Israel, its long-term legitimacy is completely gone. It's, it's eviscerated. There's, there's nothing left of that. If it ever had it, I'm surprised that it ever had it. But look, many of us had spent a couple of years not really talking about Palestine because of the Ukraine conflict, because of the United States' push toward Cold War and World War III proper with Russia and China. It was really difficult to keep up with Palestine, which is constantly under siege and only in the news when either Palestinians fight back or Israel decides to mow the lawn. So 
with all of that said, I, I do believe that U.S. hegemony is, in terms of symbolism, leadership, diplomacy, the ability to exert any kind of credibility on the world stage, I think that's already over. And, and Wyatt brought up the great points about multipolarity, which is the replacement for that. The economic situation, and I think, of course, the military situation is a little more complicated because multipolarity will continue to spread. There's no doubt about it. The, even countries like Saudi Arabia, as we've seen, have, have really jumped on that ship because they know it's the only stable one. However, the United States, as I said, has the ability to sow chaos, which does bring progress backward. It does hurt countries like, for example, Syria, who want to rebuild so badly. There are reports now they're interested in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization for Security and, of course, bricks for economic cooperation but it's going to be difficult for syria to rebuild under the caesar sanctions and of course all the other kinds of sanctions and war mongering that happens within its borders so all of the countries in question all these countries that are moving in this direction toward multipolarity are facing significant challenges they face the fact that the United States is doing everything it can to hold back multipolarity and to make sure it doesn't happen. Even China and Russia, they are accelerating the process because they have the means to do so. They are uh, fiercely independent. They are bigger countries. They have advantages that many global South countries do not have. And even then, as you saw with the meeting in San Francisco, and as we will continue to see with U.S. policy toward China and toward Russia, we're going to continue to see challenges in the sense that the United States isn't going to stop trying to pull Russia into a conflict like it did with Ukraine, no matter if it has lost Ukraine. And the United States isn't going to give up its militarization of the Asia Pacific, which does have an effect. It doesn't necessarily have the biggest effect on economic ties. Even South Korea and Japan in these countries wouldn't dare uh, decouple from China. But it is quite clear that countries like South Korea, the Philippines, these countries have a really difficult time not towing the U.S. line, which then impedes certain development projects. Maybe there are color revolutions, as we've seen in countries like Myanmar, Malaysia, etc., which do have an effect on US, on China, uh, China's relationship with countries in the global south. So. It is all very complicated and it's not linear and it's not going to be necessarily smooth, but really U.S. hegemony has been out the door in terms of its leadership, its ability to assert itself and its legitimacy on the world stage. And it's only a matter of time before that starts to translate in massive economic losses as we have seen the rudiments building up with developments like Saudi, Iran, Saudi Arabia and Iran normalizing. And, and Syria and Turkey beginning to normalize and these kind of developments that, that really do spell doom to uh, every facet of U.S. hegemony. So well, just to, to piggyback on that point a little bit. So is the United States ruling class done over with? No, obviously not. But the United States credibility as an independent power broker on the global stage, that is gone. That's done. And that to me it speaks to kind of one of, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, one of the limiting factors, the few limiting factors that actually seems to compel uh, the U.S. ruling class to try to rein in the Israelis, even if it's ever so slightly, is just the, the acknowledgement that, okay, we are co-signing all of these war crimes 
from the perspective of nearly the entire world. Um, meanwhile, when countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia want to seek out a, a rapprochement, who do they turn to? Do they go to Washington? No, they go to Beijing. When Hamas wants to be heard, do they go to Washington? No, they go to the Qataris and they go to Moscow, right? So where is the role of the U.S. in terms of this, you know, whatever future global order we have? Well, it certainly hasn't, and it hasn't described one. Our ruling class has not pushed forward any alternative to the, to the reality as it currently stands, which makes people kind of wonder, well, like, what is the long-term plan? Are they, are they ever going to acknowledge that the reality has shifted from what it was 20, 30 years ago? And the longer our ruling class refuses to do that, the more it jeopardizes um, its own ability to ever recover from that. Well, if we want to end on a good note, um, Argentina just um, became the anarcho-capitalist society of our dreams. Congratulations, Argentina, for electing a Zionist and cap. I'm sorry, Yara. Uh, yeah. I said, as an Argentinian, let's not even, I can't even have <laughs> a conversation right now. I need let's to not open it. that. Let's not open that, that can of worms. Yeah, that's rough. The boludo. Yeah. Boludo, que te pasa, loco? Unfortunately, <laughs> I think that was predicted, but yeah, no, that's. Yeah, it was, it was, we were headed in that direction for a minute, but I mean complete uh, wide-scale currency collapse uh, happening in Argentina right now, worst hyperinflation ever. And uh, I, I already know, you know, my, my half of my family already lost their businesses and everything. And now they're going to be privatizing education, which is, you know, one of the only things we have left. So it's a great time to be an Argentinian right now. Well, yeah, I'm in Spain <laughs> I, now. I can't be there anymore no it's impossible yeah so why yeah, don't so the know why where you're at what you're doing well where you'll be at what's going on with you etc etc i am in an undisclosed bunker underneath al shifa hospital surrounded by so weapons we'll see you soon. so we'll see you soon yeah you'll catch some clips that the idf puts out on twitter see me mm -hmm. in the background i'm sure no, I'm I'm in uh, Kentucky right now, but uh, I'll be doing some traveling soon, um, and I'll keep you guys updated about that. Probably, probably more after Christmas. But uh, yeah, I uh, I'll let you know. Follow me on on Twitter. It's at Wyatt Reed One Three. You can keep up to date with what I'm doing and what we're covering, um, both personally and at the Gray Zone. Um, and feel free to reach out with uh, any thoughts feedback or suggestions or uh, story ideas. Danny, where are you at? What are you doing? Sure. So uh, yeah, you can follow me on uh, YouTube. Just search my name, Danny Haifong, Rumble, Rockfin, all those platforms where I do regular streams, videos. Um, and then yes, X Twitter, whatever it's called now, uh, Spirit of HO, Spirit of Ho. That's where you can find me. And Telegram, you can find me. Uh, just search my name, Danny Haifong, or China and Geopolitics, and find me there. And you can find Yara on Twitter now crying about her new president. Congratulations, yeah. Yara, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. We have a holla on Wednesday, and we'll see you guys then. Take us out, area.